You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to ODI. Thank you very much for joining us for our debate today on universal basic income that we hope is going to be very interesting and very engaging. Um, My name is Elizabeth Stewart, and I'm head of the Growth, Poverty and Inequality Programme here at ODI. Um, Many of you, I think, if you're attracted to come and listen to this debate or watch it online, I should say that we've got a very large audience of people watching online. And I should also say, please do feel free to tweet the event. Uh, You'll see the hashtag there, hashtag UBI debate. But if you've already shown the interest to log on and watch this event or join us here in the room here in London. Uh, I'm sure many of you will already already be familiar with the basic concept of UBI. It's actually used in slightly different ways. We're talking about unconditional cash that's given to the university of the, the, the population, everyone within a country, and that it's not means tested. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, It's actually not a new idea. Again, some of you may know that if you're in the room. It's actually been knocking around in policy circles for 50 to 60 years. Uh, It's interestingly enough uh, an issue that cuts across right and left kind of debates. It was one of the first proponents of it was Milton Friedman, Uh, yet one of the more recent proponents of it has been Barack Obama and the socialist candidate in the French presidential elections recently also had it on his platform. So it really really does cut across uh, ideological divides. The reason we're talking about it today is that there are many people around the world who think it's an old idea, but an idea whose time has come. And it's being experimented or piloted or trialed. Obviously, you can't have a complete trial if it's with a limited sample of the population. It's not universal properly. But there are trials attempting to glean initial pieces of information on what uh, universal basic income would look like and what impacts it would have. They're happening in Finland. Um, People have been given $600 a month, randomly selected group of people getting $600 a month. Uh, It's going to be happening in India. Uh, It's happening in Ontario, uh, in Canada. It's happening in Oakland, California. Uh, Give Directly, an NGO, uh, is uh, piloting a 12-year Uh, randomly controlled trial in urban areas in Kenya. So this is a very live policy debate. And what we want to see today is just hear some of the arguments about whether this really is a policy for the future or whether this is a policy whose time should never come, to put it it, uh, bluntly. So before I introduce the speakers, what I want to do is show you the results of a poll that we've been running on Twitter. I should preface this by saying... Uh, Earlier this year, a poll was conducted across Europe of 11,000 people to ask them whether they liked the idea of a UBI, and 68% of respondents said that they did. So let's just uh, see how ODI respondents tallied with that. Yes, agreeing. So 72% saying yes, 28% saying no. I'm going to ask if if you, uh, you all here in the room now at the start of this what you think about this. If you could take a minute, if you have your phone... If you could log on to, you can see that it's our Glissa, uh, onto the Glissa site, glissa.it slash UBI. If you can type that into your phones, you'll need to give your email as well. And you can uh, 
tell us what you think about going into the debate, what your currently held view is, and then I'm going to come back to you at the end of the debate and see whether anyone's changed their mind. We might not have an exactly uh, replicated sample, but hopefully most people will stay with us for the hour and a half of the debate. So I'm just going to give you just uh, half a minute to do that now. So glissa.glsr.it slash UBI, and it'll say, should there be a universal basic income? Yes or no? I can see some people still typing into their phones. Do, of course, people watching online, do please uh, participate in this as well. And do, when we come to the Q&A questions, I've got the... Um, the iPad here is up as well, and I'll be taking questions from the online audience around the world. Okay, I think I see enough people putting their phones down. Let's see, let's see what the view in the room is and online is at the start. Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty definite. 95%, I don't know what our confidence interval is, but 95% yes. Oh, and it's, and it's shifting. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> We could just stay here for an hour and a half and watch that, just, you know, talk amongst ourselves. Let, let's not do that. Right. Let me move rapidly now to introducing our speakers. And I think it's um, a, 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 a nice reflection of the fact that this is a genuinely universal issue. This is a live policy discussion in developing and developed countries that we've got. Our panel comes from all around the world. Um, let me go first to Shanta Devarajan. You can see at the bottom of the screen here who's waving. Thank you, Shanta. Uh, joining us from DC, Shanta's the chief economist for the Middle East and North Africa at the World Bank and has written on UBI fairly extensively. Uh, let me introduce next Shamika, uh, Shamika Ravi, who's a senior fellow uh, at the Brookings Institute based in Delhi, Brookings Institution based in Delhi. Uh, thirdly, let me introduce Ilka Kaukuranta. I've been advised by a Finnish colleague that that pronunciation is not too terrible. Um, Ilka is the chief economist at SAC, which is the largest uh, union uh, representing blue-collar workers in Finland. And lastly, but of course not least, in the room, we have David Piatu, uh, who's uh, a professor of social policy uh, based here in London at the LSE. Now, before I go to our panellists and ask them to make a two-minute introduction setting out their case, and I will try and stick fairly brutally to timing, so I will cut you off after two minutes. Of course, there's going to be plenty of time to de for debate and to flesh out arguments later on. But before I do that, I wanted to go to my colleague, Francesca Bastagli, who is a uh, principal research fellow here at ODI, uh, specialising in social protection, just to talk us through a little bit more about the sort of the parameters of what we're talking about when we're thinking about UBI. Francesca. Thank you, Liz. Can you hear me? All right, thank you. So one of the reasons why I think uh, the UBI, the universal basic income, as a concept, but also as a uh, practical policy option, is so fascinating is that it has been debated by a range of disciplines, um, from political philosophy and sort of theories of social justice to policy debates about what works in poverty reduction or tackling um, unemployment, unpaid labor, underpaid labor, um, all the way to debates around how to best ensure that policy reaches the poor, so the administration of policy. 
Um, and it seems to me that one of the tasks that we have is precisely as we go ahead and discuss this topic is to make sure that we thread together these different strands of arguments and of approaches to the topic. Now, in recent, uh, sort of in the recent renewed interest in the UBI, a couple of, uh, there are a couple of issues that stand out to me or points that I'd like to make just before I, we move on to the speakers. Um, one of these concerns, what is it that we're talking about, right? And you hinted at this, um, Liz. In practice, particularly in the media coverage of the UBI debate, um, the expression universal basic income is being used to refer to quite a wide range of types of transfers. And in particular, when we look at specific pilots underway or proposals being debated, we're actually talking about rather different things. They mostly concern cash transfers, uh, but some of these are quite different. Uh, for instance, a lot of them include elements of targeting. And I think it's fine to use the expression UBI to refer to a range of different um, types of transfers, but at the same time, I also think it's important that we are clear about what it is we're talking about. And for instance, in some cases, what, what we really are talking about is um, about different approaches to targeting, right? And so to what Tony Atkinson would refer to as degrees of targeting. Is it that a more narrowly targeted policy with high informational requirements that is quite complex to administer, does that perform better than a targeted transfer that is more broadly targeted, that is simpler to administer? So that's the sort of discussion that's actually taking place. The second point that stands out to me concerns the context. So in some countries, um, the potential for introducing a, cash, uh, a UBI is being debated within the, the context of quite substantial cuts in social spending. Um, in other contexts, um, in other countries, it's being debated alongside the phasing out of existing safety nets or social protection programs. Again, here I think it's quite important that we take the broader policy context into account because the UBI doesn't operate in a vacuum. Um, and the way, the rationale for its introduction and the way it functions in practice will vary hugely depending on what happens to the remainder of the social policy sector. My final point, and uh, then we'll move on, concerns where the funds for UBI come from. Um, there, have been, there have been a lot of estimates about the cost, but aside from the cost issue, there is an issue out about the, the, the source of money. Um, we see some headlines about money being free and handed freely, but money isn't free. It comes from somewhere, um, and this matters. The options range from funding a UBI via general taxation. In some countries, this is uh, revenue that is raised through progressive direct income tax. Um, but other options include raising tax on capital um, or redistributing wealth from natural resources. In other countries still, some of the low-income countries we're, we're considering, um, the, the pilots are being funded entirely externally by donors or charities. Um, and the reasons why this matter, and there are a number of reasons, I'll only mention a few, uh, include the, what this means for the potential for building institutions, for establishing or strengthening social contracts between the state and the population, and of course for, for um, the sustainability of policy over time. So these are just a couple of initial issues, and I'll hand over to the speakers. Thanks. Great. Thanks very much. That's, that's a really helpful framing framing kind of conversation, and I'm going to guess where your vote, uh, where, it, where it landed. Um, okay, I'm going to go to the for side first. So I'm going to come first to Shanta, 
Can I ask you, please, two minutes on the clock, your reasons why you are in favor of a UBI? Go. Okay. Um, three reasons, very quickly. Uh, three very different reasons. One is if you look at the experience of oil-rich countries in Africa, say, they've done a terrible job of using their oil revenues to reduce poverty. And the main reason for that is that the oil revenue comes directly to the government and with very little accountability on how they use it. So we've done some experiments where we, we look at what would happen if you take that same amount of oil revenue and distribute it to the population in an equal basis. And what we find is that in countries like Equatorial Guinea or Gabon or Angola, if you just take 20% of the oil revenues and distribute it equally to the entire population, you can eliminate poverty in all three of those countries. Now, the second reason is that not if you leave aside the oil-rich countries, also in the oil-importing countries like India and Egypt, what you have is a whole morass of subsidies aimed at trying to help the poor that are hugely inefficient, and in many cases, because of the leakage, don't even reach the poor. And I'll, uh, I won't dwell on this because I'm sure Shamika will refer to this, but I, I actually think if you replace these subsidies with universal cash transfers, you can actually achieve both equity and efficiency and reduce poverty. And then finally, if you look at uh, the rich countries, there's a big debate, as I'm sure uh, Ilka will uh, mention, about uh, uh, technology replacing jobs. But the, the problem there is that technology is actually useful in increasing the productivity of, of, uh, of work. So the real question is not the loss of jobs, but the question of who benefits from this increase in productivity. And again, if you can take this big increase in productivity, this rent, and distribute it as universal basic income, that will free up a lot of people Great. who don't have to continue to try to work in inefficient industries okay. and instead actually uh, be able to do what they really believe in. So for three reasons, I think the time for universal basic income has come. Fantastic. Thank you, Shanta. That was very succinct. Thank you for that. Uh, Shamika, let me come to you next because you're also on the pro side. Two minutes, Shamika. Uh, thank you. So I'm going to limit myself to uh, uh, to the Indian case, uh, though uh, Shanta has already laid out the broad categories under which a UBI is, in, you know, particularly uh, appealing. In the Indian case, uh, you know, essentially the overriding factor is efficiency, because India does have uh, very many different kinds of subsidies. And just to give you a sense of the numbers, you know, our uh, food program, for instance, which is one of the largest globally. 36% uh, is pure leakage, which means it just disappears in the system. Another 36% goes to the non-poor, which means it is totally mistargeted. And only about 28% really reaches the poor. And this is symptomatic of most uh, subsidy schemes that is being run in the country. So by that metric, uh, and this is where I argue that it cannot be, UBI cannot be a new form of subsidy. It really does have to replace uh, a couple of the existing subsidies, and I basically narrow down to food, fuel, and fertilizer. And together, you know, these three components really amount to 2% of the GDP, uh, which if, if translated into an UBI is really $4 for a household of four people uh, per month. And this amounts to 2% of GDP. Uh, and uh, we can see a reduction in poverty from 22 to 7%. Now, 
the fears of moral hazard that we have seen, you know, there's been enough randomized control trials globally to show that uh, people aren't essentially lazy. They find, you know, newer things to do and better things to do with their time and money. So there's no reason to believe that people will overnight become lazy. And I do believe that in India, targeting is a bad idea. It really has to be universal because targeting has led to a big middleman problem, which is the bureaucracy. And uh, just to give you an example, you know, the NREGS, which is the Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, the most uh, celebrated uh, scheme, the best aspect to that scheme is it's a self-targeted scheme. Okay. If you want to work, you can come and get paid. And even there, uh, you know, there is a tremendous uh, amount of uh, leakage in the system. So it has to be I'm, universal. I'm going to cut uh, you off and, there, and Shamika. Okay, we'll, we, okay, we'll, come, back, we'll come back to more uh, issues on that later. Okay. So that's a very clear setting out there of uh, why this is a good idea. I'm going to come next to Ilka. Why not? What's your arguments against? Two minutes, please. Thank you. Uh, Finland is running a randomized experiment with basic income. I think it's a great thing for social science research, but uh, not a good solution for social policy, certainly not for Finland. Basic income is an efficient way of distributing money, which uh, is not the challenge uh, Finland is facing uh, and that most developed countries are facing. The biggest challenge in social policy is not distributing money, but gathering the money to distribute. We need high employment to have sufficient taxes to fund social benefits we want. Basic income is unconditional. That's the basic idea behind it. It's a beautiful idea, but it's, it's also its key downfall. Conditionality is the way to combine good level of benefits with high employment. Conditionality pushes people towards work, since you lose benefits if you, if you don't apply for work. And so this basic income unconditionality, it gives the unemployed the choice to not work. And this inevitably leads to lower employment. And that leads to, to cuts to social benefits. So it's a good way of, of giving out money, but that's not the problem we have. So it's, it's not, uh, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that it could be a good solution for, for, for India. Uh, the, the, the leakage problem is not something we, we have in our social mm -hmm. benefit system. It's uh, something like 3% goes to, goes to uh, bureaucracy. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Also very short and succinct. Um, last, David, let me, let me ask you for your two-minute intervention. Well, if time permits, I'll argue that uh, I, I, I'm in favour of people having a basic income, but the basic income, the universal unconditional basic income, is a very bad way of achieving that. There's still a lot of confusion. I agree with Shantar about in an oil or mineral-based uh, economy, a blessing or a curse, a basic income may be far better way of distributing that income than present systems. In more advanced economies, there's a lot of confusion about the relationship with existing social security. Is it a replacement or is it a sub supplement? If it's a supplement, recognizing that social security has responded to needs of pensioners, unemployed people, complex disability needs and children, certainly with tests and conditions, but if you add a basic income into that as well, you're not simplifying anything, you're actually making it more complex. If it's a replacement, uh, an unconditional basic income would either be vastly expensive, I mean, not, not a few pence, a few percent on income tax, but, but 20, 30, 40 percent increase, um, 
Or, if it wasn't that, it would be way below poverty levels. It would be an almost trivial sum. It's not economically efficient. It's not targeted at the poor. Um, uh, so criticisms of existing systems, such as we just heard from India, is <laughs> the proposal is to replace it with an even less targeted system. Uh, it's not politically feasible. The French presidential first round in which the Parti Socialiste was more or less wiped out, uh, a perhaps Corbynist uh, fate um, that um, befell that party. Um, even there, then it wasn't a, fully, a full uh, unconditional basic income they were putting forward. And fundamentally, it's not just. Um, justice is about more than income, a fair distribution of work and of income, and, and a lot of the arguments relate to a world of robots in which half or three-quarters of jobs are replaced. Yeah. There that you have yeah. winners, owners and operators, the rest are nowhere. Yeah. So, so to suggest it's an easy answer to poverty, as a Guardian article put it, is seriously misguided. Okay, wonderful. Well, we've got entirely opposing views, which always makes for a very, very interesting debate. I mean... Let me, David, pick up on one of your one of your uh, points you made towards the end of your presentation and put it directly to Shanta, which is the efficiency argument. How can it be efficient to if if if, if poverty, if ending poverty, is one of the objectives of a UBI? Would it not? How can it be efficient to give this transfer to everyone? How can it? Why would it not be more efficient to really understand the undermining causes of that poverty? and deal with those? The only point we are making, I think both uh, Shamika and I, is that the current system of trying to eliminate poverty is missing the boat. Uh, it is grossly inefficient. And the reason it's inefficient is that governments are actually manipulating that system for their own benefit. That's the leakage that Shamika was talking about with the public uh, distribution system in India. So all we're saying is that you can actually improve the efficiency with which you reduce poverty, paradoxically, by giving out the same amount to everybody, because that same amount makes it very hard for politicians to manipulate it. People can, whenever you have a targeted cash transfer, and we've seen this time and time again in developing countries, politicians will manipulate it, the, the, the eligibility, in order to benefit their particular constituency. And that's when the leakage starts. So if instead you say everybody gets the same amount, uh, and incidentally, if everyone gets the same amount, it actually means a lot more to poor people. So it has a, a progressive element in it. But the most important thing is you can't manipulate it. Everybody knows how much they're supposed to get, and you can make sure they get it. And that is a very powerful way of reducing poverty. Okay. Okay. Um Sharmika, can I pick you up on, I mean, you, you talked about the, the, the experiment, the, the pilot in India at the moment, and, um, you know, talked, to, talked a little bit about um, coverage. I know that at the moment the Ministry of Finance has said that coverage is likely to be of 93% of the population because that's the percentage of the population who's covered by the citizen registration scheme, the Aadhaar scheme. I have a question about inequality, which is, again, something that David had picked up on. Uh, admittedly, 93% is better coverage, the point you made, it's better coverage than some of the existing systems at the moment, not least the public distribution system. But you're still leaving out uh, a, a, you know, a sizable 
you know, less than a single digit, but still sizable percentage of the population who will, by very definition, because they are the uncounted, they're left out of the census, they're left out of surveys, already most likely be the people who are the poorest and most disadvantaged in the population. Are you not just exacerbating that inequality if we think about a sort of leave no one behind argument? Sure. So uh, to answer that immediate question, let me uh, tell you that, you know, UIDAI, which is the Aadhaar, the unique identification, uh, you know, we reached 93% about six months back. Uh, but there is a, you know, an incredible drive uh, and outreach to really enroll more and more uh, part of the population. You know, I'd like to actually go back to the efficiency argument because there's something I'd like to add to that. And one is that, you know, poverty itself is not a static idea. People are constantly moving above and below the poverty line. So in the Indian case, if we believe that we can really target them accurately in the long run, it, it's not an efficient way to think about it. That's number one. And number two, if we can actually over time improve our tax network, then you can even make it revenue neutral for the rich and make it like a negative income tax for the poor. So over time, you can actually design a system which becomes even more efficient, where the distortion can be that more is taken away from the, you know, the rich as a means of negative tax, and you really give it to the poor as an expanded, uh, you know, universal basic income. So it really is a, is a, you know, universal basic income. The simplicity is that targeting can be out of the, uh, uh, you know, the equation because that essentially is the biggest. Uh, Ching in the Indian uh, experiment. Okay, let me let me pick some of those arguments um, to David, then I'll come to you, Ilka. But um, I, I, I mean, at its crudest, if you like, how can we, if if the figures we've heard are correct, and and I know the Ministry of Finance in in India has confirmed that they think they can get Indian poverty down to seven percent um, through a UBI. You know, current poverty reduction efforts have made extraordinary strides in the last 20 years, but we know there are significant pockets of poverty that remain. If this is something that's going to work, how can we be against this? In, 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 a, in an area of policy that perhaps needs new thinking and new initiatives and new ideas, and it's replacing some regressive, we know fossil fuel subsidies are regressive, if it is replacing rather than complementing those uh, inefficiencies, how, how can we be against it, to put it crudely? Well, in theory, it's, it's very easy to abolish poverty. You give poor people enough money and you tax people uh, better ergo, off. Ergo, uh, that's the but argument. But well, is that going to happen? Um, are administrative systems which um, may not be very open, maybe subject to manipulation, uh, are we to believe that uh, one simplified system is going to be cease to be any possibility of um, corruption of that system, um, people's being allowed to register who don't exist, or um, uh, some people being excluded because they're in uh, unpopular minorities. Um, I don't think that those problems are suddenly going to disappear wholly because we have one simple system and because it's computerized um, uh, that, 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 that I think that's putting a trust in technology which uh, uh, if, if, if there is the openness, if there's desire to tackle those uh, problems at a high, high enough level then, then um, they would have been tackled. I mean there are, there are forces 
uh, that don't want to redistribute resources, that don't want to uh, mm. um, get benefits to those who really yeah. need them. Um, uh, and, and those will, if they can be tackled, then yes, poverty can be tackled in lots of ways and uh, other ways rather more efficient than a basic income. Okay, we'll, we'll come on to the political aspect of this later. I, I wanted to pick up now on the jobs, on the employment aspect. Um, and Ilka, I mean, very interesting. It, it feels a little bit counterintuitive, actually, that a, a union would be opposing this when actually... Um, improving situations of precarity in the workforce is one of the reasons why the UBI is being, is, is being posited. But I wanted to ask you to come back and ask you about the automation question, um, which again is another uh, sort of another reason, another part of the rationale for a UBI, particularly in, in um, developed economies. It's less of a uh, work done by colleagues at, at ODI actually shows that automation or indicates that automation is less of an immediate threat in developing countries. But in a kind of an OECD country context, um, do you not think, you know, if the jobs are going to be taken away by robots, to put it crudely, people are going to need something to live on? Does, does that not work as an argument for you in the Finnish context? I think the robot argument is uh, is a very good argument for having social benefits, having having unemployment benefits, and uh, education benefits, uh, all, all, all sorts of social policy. But uh, the biggest challenge robots and uh, loss of jobs creates is uh, is the uh, the fact that the tax base erodes. If if, yeah. if we lose, uh, if un employment goes down. There's uh, there's simply not the, not enough uh, people to tax, and uh, the government uh, government finances are, are hit hard, and it makes it makes money even tighter, and uh, shifting shifting from a targeted social benefit system to a, a UBI scheme is uh, is less efficient in, in the sense that uh, you, you need uh, in, instead of giving money only to the poor, you give it also to to rich people, and uh, you simply have to tax. Have a larger, larger amount of, of tax revenue to fund fund a UBI scheme that is of of similar level. So, robots is a, it's a real challenge, but again, it's a challenge for for the revenue side. And UBI is a, a solution for giving out money, which, uh, as I said, in at least in in, in Finland, uh, that's that's another challenge we have. Giving giving out money is, is actually quite easy for. Our bureaucracy. It's, so it's, uh, an it's an answer to the wrong question in your in, in exactly. the Finnish in the Finnish context. Okay, David, let me um, let me let me ask you a, a, a similar question. But also, we were talking a little bit earlier about informality, and you know that if you are you know at the moment, social protection tends to be something that comes to you by virtue of being in employment. It's being part of part of the workforce. And if you're employed in the informal economy, then you're usually left out of uh, any forms of social protection. So let me ask you, David, is there not an argument then that UBI would then explicitly bring informal workers into some kind of a protection or give them some kind of benefit, some kind of ex-ante security? Well, again, the question is how much would they get? Uh, um, if, it's, if it's way below any sort of poverty level, then... Um, they're dependent on other sources to, to, to get by. Um, I, I think the, the idea that, I mean, in general, trying to get more informal work to be formalised and under better conditions and, and properly paid so that lots of the work that 
predominantly women do in childcare, in care of disabled people, in caring in the community, has been almost wholly unrewarded. And that, that, that doesn't seem to me a good thing in, in, in principle. So if you're actually encouraging that to happen, mm. it's, it seems to me to be going in the, in, in the wrong direction. I think it's important to remember that the choice has been put uh, by several people as sort of UBI or targeted social security. Targeted social security is targeted at certain groups. It doesn't have to be complex means tests. It may be targeted at children. It may be targeted at um, groups who are disabled with certain categories of disability. It may be targeted, as in South Africa, at elderly people um, with with very simple um, tests of uh, So sort of, of variants of, not you, UBI, but sort of variants of it. Yes. Yeah, you're playing around with the universality. That's the aspect of it that you find problematic, yeah, target, not the basic and not the It doesn't have to mean, mean, okay. mean complex uh, uh, tests. Um, in Britain, there's this macabre test being considered of that to get child benefits for third and subsequent children, yeah. poor mothers are having to provide evidence that they were raped. Yeah. I mean, that's an appalling conditionality. Yeah. Um, so, but, but, but general conditionality exists, I mean, in relation to age, in relation to work, uh, in relation to household size, and, and, and no one's saying, well, in fact, one's saying that if you're trying to target needs, they are actually okay. good conditions. So let me put some of that to you, Shanta, and, and add the question. I mean, I think it was Ilka, you talked about kind of encouraging people out of the labour force, and, and you, you've mentioned that as well. Um, there's a, a, a nicely titled paper, Shantra, I'm sure you'll be familiar with it, that talks about should we pay surfers to surf off Malibu? Is, you know, is UBI just going to mean we can all sit at home watching daytime TV and eating crisps? Is that, what, I mean, where, do you, where do you sit on that argument? I'm very pro-daytime TV and crisps, I should state at this point. <laughs> Yeah, and surfing in Malibu actually sounds pretty good. Right. Uh, no, I, I think it's a, it's a reasonable question to ask whether this is going to lead to a reduction in labor supply. Uh, but the overwhelming evidence that I've seen of all these comparisons of conditional versus unconditional cash transfers in rich and poor countries show that it doesn't have that effect. In fact, I think... Uh, UBI will actually release people to pursue jobs, uh, including part-time jobs. And that's the debate in Finland right now, is that uh, many of the people are afraid to take, many of the unemployed are afraid to take part-time jobs because they'll lose their unemployment benefits, even though those part-time jobs might be the most productive things they can do. So I think the, the but it's actually the reverse, that UBI releases people to pursue those things that they are most productive at. And you could actually end up with a more productive economy by not having to link the, your income with your, your salary, your job, what your payment for, for jobs. You could have many more artists. You can have many more musicians uh, who can pursue, and if they have talent for music, they can pursue their, their, their talent and their creative energies without having to get another job in order to earn a salary. Very interesting. And just, just quickly, last question around the sort of jobs issue. Sharmika, if I may, I'm interested in the issue of decent work, which, you know, you know is a hard fought for uh, term that's now accepted within the concept of thinking about labour markets. It's part of the sustainable development goals, for instance. 
Do you think there might be a danger that um, UBI is basically is effectively a kind of a, a SOP that says, okay, we don't need to think about some of the structural problems in the labour market now. We don't need to think about the work being decent. We don't need to be. We don't need to worry about. Um, other, other problems with the labour market because we have the UBI and that, that answers everything? Well, essentially that goes back to whether the labour supply will, you know, uh, go backwards. Uh, you know, essentially it's the same question. Uh, there is reason to believe, you know, the, the nature of the transfer is so small uh, in the Indian case uh, that, that it's unlikely to make, uh, you know, uh, these kind of distortions. Uh, in the short run. And remember, similar arguments were given when NREGS was implemented, that, you know, the government is basically going to uh, guarantee 100 days of wage employment, uh, so, so, you know, people will not want to go out and seek uh, jobs. And that actually, you know, the empirical evidence, if anything, uh, is really to the contrary. Uh, first of all, the government does not have the capacity to create as much job. And, and remember back in the UK, about 200 years back, when the whole idea of these you know, workstations and job sites were created, they had to be so appalling that people only went there as a last, uh, you know, a resort. And in the NREGS case, you know, you have to work outside in, uh, you know, in, in the heat tilling uh, uh, land. Yeah. So, uh, but so the design of these schemes are such that uh, it has not led to a backward, you know, bend in the supply. What it has done, however, is that it has raised the minimum wage. Now, remember, in a labor-abundant economy like India, you can never enforce minimum wage laws unless you really do something like this. Because, you know, there are so many informal contracts and, and you know, the informal economy is so large that in some sense, NREG has also done well for the formal labor market itself. Okay. Let, let, me, let me come back to you first with the, the final sort of area I want to probe around the UBI question, and that is what it may potentially do for good and for ill around issues of social cohesion. I mean, this is clearly a very pertinent question in lots of different country contexts right now, the sort of sense of whether there's enough social capital between people or whether that's being undermined at the moment. Um, I mean, let me start with a basic question around who do we think should be eligible for something like a UBI. I mean, clearly in, in, in India, it's if you are registered with Adhar, with the citizens registration scheme. But there are, I mean, this raises questions about, for me, it raises questions about, for instance, the role of migrants in a society. I mean, what, what do we mean? What, what are the implications for citizenship of this kind of program? Do you have to, is it okay if you've been here for a year or in the country for a year? Do you have to have been there for five years? What do you think? I mean, talk to me about some of the implications you think of for, for, for migration as a, as a governance expert. To, to Ooh, whom are you addressing that? this question? Sorry, this is to, Sh to Shamika. As a, so my okay. question is, as a, as a governance expert, do you not think, you're, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking about migration and the intersection between migration and the UBI, do you not think this, is, this could actually be a divisive tool if you're saying you have to have been a citizen for you know, five years, ten years to, to, uh, to be eligible for this, that this could actually further divide societies? Well, you see, that is the reason why uh, there is a separation between the citizen registry of the Home Ministry and the Aadhaar, which was really an outcome of the Planning Commission, that uh, Aadhaar is not linked to citizenship. So if UBI is going to be based on Aadhaar, then it's automatically delinked from citizenship. Mm -hmm. 
But remember that, uh, you know, being a poor country and the resources uh, being limited and with increased fiscal devolution, the states are going to have a greater say on exactly how much will be, uh, uh, you know, transferred. And in that case, it's very difficult to predict whether each state is going to have, you know, very similar uh, uh, policies. Remember NREGA, again, the wages are very different across different states. Okay, okay let me ask Sean to ask you the same question. Shami is asking, uh, responding specifically for the Indian context. I mean, same question for you for other country contexts. Could this be de divisive depending on, on eligibility criteria? I don't think so because it's really, it, it, look, at, look at the way we treat migrants now. I mean, migrants still have to get work permits and uh, be eligible for work in the current system. And it's, it's going to be something similar to that, being eligible for universal basic income. Uh, that uh, it's your, it's whether you've been in the country for one or two years or five years or whatever. Uh, I don't know whether this can be seen as more divisive than uh, what uh, the current situation. And uh, I don't need to mention the kind of... Uh, treatment that migrants uh, are experiencing in the United States uh, to tell you that even without universal basic income, there are lots of, uh, lots of problems. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that's the big issue. Can I just uh, use my time to uh, just make one other point uh, about Ilka, uh, what Ilka said, which is um, that we need to maintain employment in order to uh, generate revenues, tax revenues. Well, that's because we are currently basing the tax system on employment uh, employment taxes. Or, or uh, whereas, if you think of it as a, an income tax, if you're taxing incomes, regardless of whether you're employed or not, then that changes your tax base. Um, uh, and you know, you should only adopt something uh, a, a an employment program or adopt technology, if you, if you take a, t a technology that increases productivity in the economy, even if it sheds labor, that increase in productivity will lead to an increase in the tax base. Okay. You will actually earn more revenue rather than less revenue. And then you can distribute that revenue as a universal basic income. So the people who lost their jobs won't be uh, suffering. Okay, let me, let me, I'm going to put that directly to you, Ilka, and then I'm going to come to David with a, with a last question from me on social cohesion. But Ilka, do you want to respond to that one, Shanta's question directly? Yes, please. Uh, the, the, in, in principle, yes, it, it goes exactly as, as Shanta described. The, the, the problem is that uh, the owners of the robots, the owners of the algorithms are not necessarily within, within the same country as those who are losing their jobs. So it's... Uh, if, if we had one global global tax man, this would be an easy 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 problem to solve. But uh, the fact is that we don't, and uh, and the owners owners of uh, of that sort of information capital are highly mobile. We, we can't uh, can't uh, get get people from Silicon Valley to, to move to Finland uh, by offering them eighty percent tax rates. It's uh, it's uh, it's just not feasible. And for for that reason. Low, lower employment w would be a problem for for tax tax collection, regardless of uh, of whether whether there's uh, h other high high income people elsewhere to tax. Okay. But but going back to the social cohesion question, if if I could. Yeah, please. In in Finland, we we considered very important that our social benefit system is is universal, applies to everyone who lives in Finland, regardless of nationality, and. Uh, Moving to a UBI scheme, 
it, it would of course mean that uh, all migrants are also within UBI. And uh, we want our social benefit system to, to provide a decent level of living, not, not simply to survive, but to be able to take your kids and, uh, you know, go, go on holiday once in a while, a real decent level of, of living. Currently, the benefit system is conditional. It means that we, we push people towards education and towards work. And for, especially for migrants, it's very important that, uh, that people, they, they integrate into the society. And pushing, pushing people towards, towards education and language training and work is, uh, is a good way to, to ensure that people actually do become integrated. Simply offering 600, 800 euros a month uh, unconditionally would, I, I think, lead to much, much lower social cohesion. It would, it would okay. exclude some people permanently from, from the job market. And uh, that, that's, uh, uh, that would be a dystopian future. Okay. L taking the idea of a dystopian future, it, it, uh, my last question, David, to you before I open this out to the audience is, I mean, I in some ways it seems instinctive that everybody getting the same amount in a country reduces some of the social stigma of people being welfare claimants or benefits claimants. There's lots of very negative terminology around this in, in the English language and sort of connected sort of in, the, in the, the discourse, certainly in the UK and I'm sure in other countries as well. Isn't, you know, everybody getting the same amount, it, then it doesn't matter that you are, whether you're having to depend on that that income or whether you have other sources of income, you remove the stigma. But it also, because it's cash, it gives agency to people to make their own decisions about how that money, how that money is spent. Well, the, the, the crucial question in that is, is how big is that amount? Um, I mean, some people like neocons like Charles Murray are proposing a pretty low level and then saying, well, let's abolish the education system, the health system, and let people survive and that will encourage right. them to provide for themselves. But if it's not sing. either or, if it's uh, an addition to... Well, if it's an addition, then, then it's not determining their net income. That depends on, on... I mean, quite rightly, there are quite high disability benefits for some because, because uh, most people think they should have a fair share of income and, 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 and having a very low basic income uh, just seems to me a tacking on a, a rather useless component um, that, 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 that for social cohesion then the whole system needs to be thought of as, as, as fair and, and I, I don't disagree with Shanta that it'd be good to have more artists and musicians but most people are not most people who are working hard at dull, boring jobs are not really willing to support people um, in, in doing that or s surfing off Malibu um, because they're not enjoying those ways of life. They may be willing to provide a very low level of benefit, which is not enough to live on, but then... Uh, What's the point, really? Um, but 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 I think it's wrong to think about fairness, justice, just in terms of a benefit system. It's also about the distribution of work and what people are doing, how people are contributing to the society, and that that is, as Tony Atkinson argued, that there should be conditions on getting a what he called a participation income, okay. uh, which is not unconditional. Okay.
so that, so there being a, there being some greater purpose to conditionality as well beyond its beyond the the specific condition. Okay, I'm going to um, pause this conversation for a moment and open it up to you into the room and people watching this online. I've got a few questions already from the online audience. Um, it, just to hear what your questions are. Um, if you could, if it's a question for one of the specific panelists, if you could um, be clear about that. Otherwise, I'll, I'll kind of choose who's to who to pose the questions to. And if you could also uh, tell us your name and where you're from, that would be great. Who would like to start with questions? Okay, I'm going to start with some online questions. So I've got my first question is uh, Matthew Cole from the Autonomy Institute in London wants to ask, how could UBI reduce economic inequality? So I'm going to ask that as a question to all the panellists in a minute. Uh, I've another question, Darendra, who's a PhD student from King's College in London, wants to ask everyone on the panel, uh, using the context of developing countries, if UBI becomes the new standard or norm in social protection, do you think it will affect or change significantly the, implementation, the implementation of existing social programs? So something you've been talking about, David. Um, I'm going to take one more question online, from online. Um, Kelly Hordry from Fair Trade International in Germany wants to know, uh, what are the views of the panelists on setting wage benchmarks? That is, minimum salary thresholds for targeted sectors where the majority of the poor workforce is engaged, so such as agriculture, like tea plantations or the garments industry. This is something that's being uh, promoted by fair trade standards on hired labour. So let me, let me, unless there's another question in the room for now. Nobody else with a burning question for now? Okay, let me put those three questions to the panel. Um, why don't we start with you, uh, Sharmika? Sure. Okay. Um, no, let me just take the take the hang, first hang on. one. No, no, Sharmika. Like, Sorry, Shanta. Sharmika. Oh, and then right. we'll come oh. to you. Sorry. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the UBI replacing food, fuel and fertilizer in the Indian case is really a good replacement. And uh, in that sense, it's revenue neutral as far as those uh, specific subsidies are concerned. Uh, but the question is really regarding uh, UBI becoming a norm and what does it mean for existing social protection? Other than those three, uh, in economies such as India where you know, the, the markets don't really exist and particularly healthcare, which healthcare and basic education, which uh, very few countries really have a good well-functioning private sector for, I think the role of the state is not going to diminish uh, by uh, you know, uh, rolling out of a UBI. So we will have to rethink some kinds of social protection, but fundamental role as far as uh, matters that, that, that are of, of equal opportunity in healthcare and education, I think they will remain. Uh, they are not really under threat because of this new instrument of social protection coming in. Uh, the minimum wages uh, question is really, I'd again refer to the NREGS, that uh, you, know, you can set basic minimum based on cost of living and you can account for newer things that enter the consumption basket over time. But again, there are lots of regional variations. Uh, you know, input costs vary, uh, services costs vary, and that's why we have a lot of variation within India as far as the minimum wages are concerned. And that's why it's not set by the central government. It is really set by the, you know, the regional state governments. Uh, as far as the coal, uh, you know, uh, the Autonomy Institute question from coal, UBI reducing economic inequality 
you know, this is where I say that while in the immediate run, if you are to give the same amount to everyone, it really just shifts the existing distribution upward. So it really is a shift. But if we do have a good tax system, then you can make it revenue neutral for the rich and have more remaining for the poor. So as, as uh, you know, David said, you know, what's the point of giving amounts which are so small? Well, actually, it makes a significant difference at the bottom of the income uh, you know, quintile. It might not. It's a marginal improvement or a rise for the rich. But for the poor, it's a significant change. So over time, this universality itself can be uh, tweaked and innovated and, and improved over time to make it one where you know, economic equality actually becomes better over time. Great, thank you, Shanta. You wanted to you wanted to come in next. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, actually, Shamika answered that question very well. But let me just add then one more point uh, in response to something that David said earlier about why would governments agree to this if they're already not interested in uh, redistributing income, uh, and uh, the, why would they agree to a universal basic income? The, the fact is that in many governments you have forces that are pro. Um, uh, pro-poor and uh, forces that are anti-poor. Uh, but the difference with universal basic income is that it actually empowers the poor themselves uh, because of the fact that now everybody knows exactly how much they're supposed to get. And that creates some pressure from the bottom for the government to be accountable. Whereas previously, with all of these complicated schemes, they could always say, oh, well, you weren't supposed to receive this because of the, the formula that was used didn't, uh, didn't uh, include you. So there's a big shift in, in, the, in governance when you introduce UBI, um, the, the way that we've been talking about. And that is what's going to help you reduce inequality and reduce poverty. Great. Thank you. Ilka, same set of questions to you, please. If uh, we simply take the money that's used for current social benefits and uh, that's, that are currently targeted and take that same amount of money and use it to set up an UBI scheme, you will increase inequality because instead of simply targeting poor people, you're also giving out money to rich people. So if, if you only, only implement an UBI and don't do anything else, you are increasing inequality. But uh, if you find new revenue to, to fund, fund a larger, larger social state, larger amount of benefits, then, then you can, can reduce inequality. But it's not UBI that is doing it. It's the fact that you are taxing more the rich, getting, getting a larger, larger slice of money to, to the social, social benefit system. And if, if that's something you can do and want to do, you can do that regardless of UBI. You can, you can increase taxes on the rich and uh, and increase targeted, targeted unemployment benefits or targeted disability benefits or, or whatever. It's a, it's so, so sort of combining a higher taxes with UBI and claiming that the effects of higher taxes are because of UBI, I think is, uh, is, is not, uh, not, not a fair representation of, of the facts. Okay. D David, let me well, ask you uh, what can you want I, to Can I basically just respond. agree with what Ilka said about income inequality and the choices that exist there? Uh, agree with Shanita about equal opportunity depending on health, uh, education, water supplies, things that basic income doesn't actually touch. I mean, presenting it as some have done, uh, uh, that this will... Um, 
solve everything and uh, make it only rain at night time is, is, is quite unrealistic. Um, uh, that, that it will have, it could have certain benefits, but it doesn't solve everything. Mm. Um, and and uh, that, that uh, agree with Shankar that, that empowering people is what I think everyone is concerned about. Uh, and one can see a ways in which universal basic income may do that, but so have pensions or disability benefits. Um, that, that, that I don't think there's any difference, really, that pe if people have more resources, uh, uh, then, then, then they can do, buy more for themselves, uh, make decisions for themselves. And the question then is, to me, which is the most effective uh, and redistributive way that, that, that's, that's best for those who are worst off and does most to reduce inequality. And, uh, and, and, and I think there is a disagreement about whether a whether basic income uh, is, 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 is so effective simply because it's, it's, it's giving, it's, if you take in a certain amount of money, it's giving it out to everyone, whereas other systems are trying to give it out Maybe with uh, leakages and uh, not wholly effectively, but is is trying to give it for the most part to those who who are in greatest need. Okay, let me take another. I'm going to take another question online actually that's just popped into the inbox. Uh, Takatoshi Sakasi, who's an MSc student at the LSE, wants to ask: Does introducing UBI systems affect formal insurance markets? or informal risk-sharing activity in face of adverse income shocks? So let me park that question and just check whether there's others in the audience. If you have a microphone at the back here, please. Uh, thank you. My name's Abigail Hunt. Uh, I'm from ODI. Um, I just had a question. Uh, I have to admit, I don't know too much about UBI, which is why I'm here. So I just wanted to um, say that I've been reflecting on the conversation uh, in terms of women's economic empowerment. And it seems to me that there could be some potential here. Um, for example, if women for the first time are able to get hold of um, economic resources, um, that could uh, potentially uh, increase their bargaining uh, power in the household over economic resources and their control over money. Um, and of course, there's always been a very much question about the unpaid care and domestic work, which is disproportionately carried out by women and is unpaid. So again, you know, I see that there might be some potential in that um, if all members in the household are receiving a basic income, that might help uh, both men and uh, women to think about how to manage um, paid and unpaid care uh, and work and, and labour market engagement. Um, now, these are, you know, some of my hypotheses based on what we're hearing today in the, in the potential outcomes for gender equality and women's empowerment. And I just wondered uh, with the panel if that's something that you'd seen coming out of any of the, the trials um, or looked at in a kind of household level so far. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Uh, question of the front here. Hi, um, my name is Stephen Ayres. I'm from the House Commons International Development Committee, um, which is the parliamentary uh, committee that scrutinises uh, Department for International Development. Um, so obviously I'm interested in the political feasibility. Um, and I'd argue that in some countries it's actually moving in the, in the wrong direction in many ways. And even where there is evidence to support the efficacy of... Um, UBIs, it doesn't necessarily correlate with enhanced political support. Um, an example of this would be a recent review that the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, ICAI, did into DFID's use of cash transfers, which was um, broadly positive, but was reported as 
DFID exporting the dole, essentially. And um, I did get the sense that there was a sort of tangible, or at least from my perspective, sort of hardening of attitudes towards that form of development assistance as a result, despite the fact that the evidence was, was saying quite the opposite. And I think like a, a, a major barrier to the political feasibility is that, that no one's actually done it yet. And it's a big political gamble, really, to unroll a UBI on, on a countrywide scale um, with no other country having done it. So my question is, um, is there any one uh, country or set of countries that are particularly close to um, implementing a UBI? And what will it take politically to kind of push them mm, over the interesting, edge? Interesting, interesting question. Thank you. And there was a hand at the back, the woman in the black sweater. Hi, I'm Tessa. I'm self-employed at the moment. Um, and my question for the panel is, how do you guys think UBI will affect um, entrepreneurship and in particular social entrepreneurship? I think what's resonated most with me, particularly what Shanta was saying about um, giving people more agency um, and more drive to actually do things more meaningful in terms of work. Um, so not doing the boring jobs, doing stuff that actually matters. So I'm curious to know how you think entrepreneurship will be affected. Great. Nice, diverse set of questions. Thank you for that. Um, let me start actually, let me start with David with the Women's Economic Empowerment question because you all, you are the person who talked about um, childcare and whether this, this might have some perverse outcomes uh, for women. Do you want to tackle Abigail's question? Well, in general, I, it seems to me women, women have gained from, from being in formal employment. Um, a lot remain outside that and dependent on uh, male earnings and that marginally might be affected by this. But the, again, I, I keep coming back to the point about if, it, if it's an income adequate to live on, then that has potentially big effects and quite big effects on insurance market uh, uh, as Mr. Sakoshi's question was about, but but if it, if it's a very small amount, then you haven't really changed that relationship very much, um, and 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 the same applies to social entrepreneurship. If it's if it if it's a very tiny income, then then uh, how is it going to have uh, have have much uh, impact on that? If I can just add a note about about being countries close to, to a universal mm -hmm. basic Please. income. It really, I mean, there's a lot of talking up of universal basic income as something that's about to happen. Um, where it's been considered like a Swiss referendum or the French presidential election, uh, it's lost. Um, and the reason, to my mind, is because people do have a whole set of values that they associate with citizenship and what is, what is fair and, uh, and, 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 and it seems to me that the, the, the people who are advocating UBI have got to, to, to explain why the general population is going to be willing to fund entrepreneurs, however um, virtuous and original they are, or artists, musicians or surfers um, and be willing to fund that at a level that's, that's anywhere near adequate to live on. Okay. Um, Ilka, can I ask you to, to respond to the insurance question and maybe to the entrepreneurship question as well, please? The insurance question, I think uh, any sort of social benefit system has, has an effect, of course. When you have a statutory, statutory social security system, regardless of whether it's a, whether it's a, a UBI type system or, or a 
uh, a more targeted system, it has an effect on, on people's need for, for different kind of, kinds of insurances. But, uh, but the level of benefit is, is quite important. I would ad address the women's uh, job, job market yeah. issue. And uh, I think, uh, I think uh, formal employment is, is, is the key, key to, to empowering women. And, uh, and simply, simply ha handing out money is, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's an improvement in, in some situations. But uh, for example, in the context of Finland, where the benefit system is, is conditional on, uh, on uh, look, looking for work and taking up uh, uh, job training or language training, this sort of, or sort of thing, is, uh, is important in the sense that it, uh, it, it really gets the woman out, out of the household. Simply giving out uh, UBI, it, it could could very well lead to the money simply going to the family family bank account. Uh, the women st women stay at home and uh, and uh, do do not really become more empowered. But uh, ha having having them having the social transfers conditional on uh, on, uh, on on looking for work and and going to job training is uh, could could actually lead to to employment. Okay. Um Shamika, let me come to you next. I mean, feel free to answer any of them, but I was particularly interested in your response to Stephen's question about even in the face of evidence that there may be positive outcomes um, of UBI, this is, and even if you adjust um, uh, taxation systems to mean that you're not having uh, similar levels of, that richer people are paying for it, basically. You still have to sell, in a sense, the kind of, you know, the Bill Gates is getting actually the same amount of view argument, even if there's, you know, there, there's a clear reason why that's not, in fact, the case. Isn't it, doesn't it remain a very difficult political sell? And then any of the other questions, if you'd like to respond to those. Sure. So let me start out by saying that, uh, you know, the motivation for UBI will, will be very country-specific. You know, Finland might be doing it because of totally different reasons than that, that India way. And let me also be very clear that in the Indian case, the biggest appeal of UBI is absolute poverty. It, it has very little to do with automation. In fact, uh, as a policy decision, there is a, a, a great movement towards plugging this, you know, leakage in the system. Uh, and it's really from the efficiency point of view that UBI is, is has been put forth by the finance ministry. It is going to be a hard sell, but the idea is already planted in the, you know, in the political narrative. It is being openly discussed. And also remember in the Indian case, we've had several pilots with unconditional and conditional cash transfers. In fact, we evaluated a couple of them in Andhra Pradesh, which is one of the fastest growing and progressive states in the South. And, you know, just to tell you the, you know, it had very, it made an impact on, you know, the average impact was not very much. But if you looked at the distribution, then you did see that poverty levels reduced. But, you know, amongst the relatively better off, uh, the amount was too small. So they went back into the casual labor markets. So people self-select. So it will really depend on the amount that is getting transferred to the households uh, for them to make up, you know, these decisions about uh, should they be, you know, um, gainfully self-employed. Now, remember, at very, you know, uh, abject levels of poverty, self-employment, while it sounds very glamorous, is really a hand-to-mouth existence. So if there is this, you know, slight nudge in the, you know, in the form of a small uh, uh, cash transfer, it really does improve the quality of life at, you know. So on an average, though you might not find an impact, I think in India, 
we should be looking out for the distributional impact in, you know, in the left tail of, uh, of income. Uh, on the gender, you know, I'm particularly keen, um, you know, uh, on that question on the gender, is it going to have, you know, is microfinance literature over the last 25 years, and I've contributed a lot to this, microfinance has shown that, you know, when women have access to cash, they are more empowered, and it's not just them. Uh, the children eat better, the height and weight is there, you know, improving uh, relatively better. Children stay in school. So there are many unintended consequences of women in the household getting uh, access to this kind of support. And towards that, in India, we're making a push towards doing some kind of a gender audit of the Jandhar, Aadhaar, and the mobile. Because this is the trinity uh, that you will hear Prime Minister Modi talk about constantly, that this has to be the infrastructure based on which any of these social protection schemes really ought to be you know, planted. And then we need to find out how many women have access to Jandhar, how many women are enrolled, or how many are left out of that 7% that you quoted in the beginning. And mobile phone, I mean, how many women have access to these phones? So in terms of gender, uh, I think it will have a, a, a larger impact on women, but we need to know how many women are part of the network right now to benefit from it. Great, thank you. And, and, and Shantra, I saw you nodding furiously. I mean, come in on any of those questions. I'd like to hear okay. your perspective on the women's economic empowerment point, but sure. any of the questions as well. Uh, yeah, no, I, I actually have <laughs> comments on all four questions. Go ahead. Um, first, just, just to add to uh, Takatoshi's question about uh, insurance markets and adverse shocks. I mean, one of the things that we observe in, in poor countries is that one of the aspects of poverty is the uncertainty associated with the fact that, you know, at the end of the month, you may not be able to feed your children. And this has effects on people's mental health. It, the anxiety actually depletes their, their cognitive skills and they're able to work less. And, you know, you find people in these low-level uh, equilibrium traps. What UBI can do is actually alleviate some of that uncertainty. Because you know that no matter if you whether you have work or not, at the end of the month, you'll still get this check with which to feed your children. Um, so there, there's a double benefit uh, in terms of the insurance uh, uh, benefit. Um, then let me take Stephen's question from the House of Commons about uh, why this is not getting political salience, uh, in addition to the points that uh, have been made so far. I would say it's, it's very simple. Politicians don't like this because it actually reduces their power. They can't use poverty alleviation programs for political patronage. This is taking away their ability to manipulate the, the system to, to be able to increase their chances of getting elected. Uh, so th it's not surprising that this is receiving political resistance. But that's precisely the point. That's why we need this. Because political manipulation is what gets in the way of people actually benefiting from these programs. Um, and then just let me add to whether the countries that are close, uh, close to adopting it uh, and, and answer the entrepreneurship question uh, incidentally. What I'm seeing is that the, the countries in the Gulf, these are high income oil rich countries like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, are actually quite close to it. Um, to adopting some kind of universal basic income, but for a different reason from Finland or, or India. It's actually because the way they redistribute oil revenues today is extraordinarily inefficient. You know, the way they do it is actually take a country like Kuwait. They redistribute oil revenues in two ways, energy subsidies and the civil service, civil service employment, two of the least productive ways of distributing oil revenues. 
And what they're finding, you know, in Kuwait, you have 95% of the male labor force is in the public sector, right? They're, they're not doing anything, but they're getting paid, and that's how they get their oil revenues. And then they have a, the, 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 you know, the Minister of Finance of Kuwait comes to see me and says, help me develop the, uh, the private sector in Kuwait. Well, it's hard to do that when you got this highly paid and almost universal public sector. And everybody finishes work at 1 p.m., right? Everybody finishes work uh, yeah, at like 1 p.m. Exactly. Right. They finish your work and then they, you know, um, yeah, well, we won't go into that. Uh, but the, 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 the point is, the point is, you can still redistribute the oil revenues without having to make them come to work in the, in the public sector. And if you distribute those oil revenues directly to the public, some of them might actually start a business. Because now, right now, it doesn't pay for them to start a business. But if you give them the money and say, do whatever you like with it, some of them will just lie on the beach <laughs> or go surfing. Some of them will, uh, uh, will educate their kids or go abroad. And some of them might start a business. And that's how you can generate the entrepreneurship uh, that is needed for these societies to be uh, diversified in the long run. Great. OK. Thank you so much. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask... The panel, we're coming towards the, the end of the, the, our debate. Um, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to give me a, a, a less than one minute, a sub one minute wrap up statement. It can be a long sentence if you like. But what I'm also going to do is, Ilka, I've had, I've had a question online that's been directed at you. So if you could perhaps, you can have a little more time to answer the question and give me your wrap up long sentence, complex sentence. Um, so I'll, I'll come to you first, and then we're going to rerun. We're going to rerun the vote, right, to see whether this debate has has succeeded in shifting anyone's views or succeeded in not shifting their views, well, depending on your perspective. So um, the question, Ilka, is Elise, who's from the Ministry of Health in Mexico, wants to ask you. Um, you mentioned the rise in technology taking over human jobs. If formal and informal employment are going to fall imminently, shouldn't we start delinking work from income altogether? So if you could respond to that and give me your kind of your closing statement, if you would, please. Sure. I, I, I think uh, we have to do all, all we can to avoid the fall in employment. I don't think it's inevitable. It's, uh, it's not something we're really seeing in a, in a very, very large scale at the moment. It's, uh, employment rates are, are still, still quite high, and uh, it's, it's a f future that is, is much talked about, but much, much less seen. And if we arrive at a situation where, where robots take all our, our jobs, then, then we, ha we have uh, the opportunity to change our social benefit systems. But we don't have to do that before, before it actually happens. That's a sort of just closing statement. I, I think I, I consider a high level of social benefits important for, uh, and for social cohesion and alleviating poverty and enabling all, all people to have a decent level of living. And I think a targeted system where, where feasible to implement is a better way of achieving it than UBI. Okay, thank you. Very comprehensive. David, you're, you're still preparing your, your closing statement, I think so. Um, uh, Sharmika, you are too. Shanta, you look ready, ready. Let me go to you next. Okay. Um, Actually, I want to go back to the point I made at the very beginning. There are three very different reasons for UBI, and we have to be very clear that these you don't apply the same reason across the board. So, for instance, in Finland, if the social uh, welfare program is working, 
then don't don't upset it. You know, don't you don't want to change it. What but what I understand from my limited exposure to the Finnish situation is that the unemployment benefit system is not working, which is why they're piloting this UBI uh, experiment. So that one is the one that you need to fix, not the other social benefits or the disability and, and, and everything else. Similarly, in India, it's the subsidy system that's not working and some of the uh, cash transfers. So let's fix that with UBI. And then in the oil-rich countries, uh, it's the whole public expenditure system that is not working. And so let's fix that with a UBI. So there are different reasons in different countries which are solving different problems for which you have UBI. So let's not let's not break let's not upset what's already working. Let's focus on what's not working. Great. Thank you. Shamika, let me come to you for your closing remark. Sure. So I would again like to focus on the Indian case because for me that is the greatest motivation here. Yeah. Uh, I think the UBI must uh, replace food fertilizer and uh, fuel subsidy. It should not be an additional uh, instrument. Uh, the universal you know, appeal is uh, to address absolute poverty to begin with. But over time, as the tax base gets strengthened, uh, we will have more resources to transfer more to the poor and in the process also address the problem of income inequality. Going back to David's point, there will still remain corruption. But it is not going to be because of targeted subsidy towards the poor. Corruption will be of other forms, but that's not the objective of today's uh, discussion. Right. Thank you so much. As we have the pleasure of having you in the room, you have the honour of having the closing word on this, David. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think it was Francis Bacon said the truth With emerges... The, pa the painter or the, or the philosopher? Philosopher. <laughs> the truth emerges out of error rather than confusion. And I, I think it's been actually rather helpful, this debate in clarifying some differences. And, and, and as has been said, different problems uh, need different solutions. And, but they're all, in a sense, trying to tackle inequality. And, and, and I think everyone's agreed that social benefits of some form are very important in that. Uh, if you just focus, if I may focus at the end, on, on children, that uh, um, you can't pay UBI to a, a three-year-old, I mean, the question is, who do you pay it to? Do you pay it to the father who controls the household? Do you pay it to the mother who's maybe more likely, as has been said, to be empowered and, uh, and, and, and spend it for the benefit of those children? Is it better to do that in that form or to have it in the form of, of, of school meals, which may encourage children to be able to afford to go to school without having to work in child labour? That, that, that doesn't seem to me obvious it doesn't all obviously point towards UBI and thinking about the circumstances, the challenge and the different ways of doing things seem to me really important. Great, thank you. Okay, well this feels like um, a, a pretty uh, rapid uh, run through many different national contexts, different arguments, so different rationales for and against this. Let me be interesting to see where this has landed with you as an audience. So if you could... Uh, Get your phones out again, please. Uh, you could, you'll, you'll see it the same, the same uh, URL. If you could vote now. Now, the first time round, it was somewhere between 95 to 96% yes, there should be. Let me just, people look like they're still voting. You're still voting. Want to make sure we've got good turnout. We should have made it compulsory. 
compulsory registration like in the French system. Okay. Right. Let's let's have the grand reveal. What is it? What has this debate exposure to this debate done to our audience? Oh, wow. Okay. That's had quite Ooh. a significant <laughs> impact. <laughs> uh, 66% now say yes and 34% now say no. I think that shows the value of having a conversation around these things. Um, I think it feels to me like there's a lot more that can and should be discussed about this and particularly as we start to see the results coming from some of these pilots. I know that the Finnish pilot finishes in December 2018. There'll be the final results from that. I say the Kenyan example, that's a 12-year RCT. There's going to be ongoing results from that. But I think our kind of conceptualization of this will be refined as we see more of, a, more of the results. Um, can we go back to having the everyone? Uh -oh. It's going up. <laughs> yeah. OK, yes, quick, before, before it changes further. Um, I should say that at ODI, uh, we, are, we, we haven't at the moment published anything explicitly on, on UBI, but um, Francesca's programme is uh, regularly uh, publishing on cash transfers and other forms of social protection. Uh, in my programme, we're publishing a paper on uh, informality. We're looking at jobs writ large. Uh, colleagues have been publishing on automation, and we're going to publish more on automation. We've written on the gig economy. So lots of kind of relevant issues. Maybe maybe some point we will actually write a publication on UBI as well. Who knows? Um, all that remains for me now is to thank... Uh, let me start actually by thanking everyone in the room. Let me do it in an informal way and everyone online. Thank you so much for your participation. And let me thank the speakers, um, Ilka in Finland, Shamika in Delhi, Shanta in DC, and David here in London. And invite you to tea and biscuits outside, except if you're online. Thanks very much. <laughs>